You are listening to audio from Summit Community Church. You can join us Sunday mornings at 10.30 a.m. on our YouTube channel at SCC Morganton. Thank you, Jerry, very, very much. Guys, again, welcome. Thanks for coming and joining us here in worship here at Summit Community Church. Glad to be with you today on this Memorial Day weekend, the weekend where we have festivities all over the place. We go to the lakes, we have cookouts, we cut watermelons, we have a great time. But at the weekend, we celebrate those who have given their lives for us, to the men and women who sacrificed their very lives on our behalf in our country. We're here today to celebrate what Christ has done for us. Remembering this, celebrating that, but celebrating most of all Jesus Christ and who he is and what he's done in our lives. And we are continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark called Mark Season 1. When we last saw Jesus through Mark's Gospel, he had gone back to his hometown of Nazareth. Now, I would say that this was his second time back to his, his hometown. The first visit was not really good. They wanted to kill him. If you go back to your hometown, they want to kill you. I would say that's not a very good visit. Would you agree? But Christ goes back for a second time here in Mark 6. When he goes back, I would have expected a parade, expected a party, expected the news news headlines in the paper say, hometown hero returns home, but none of the such happened. Matter of fact, the opposite happened. They were offended at Jesus. They saw his wisdom, heard it, heard his teachings, heard about and saw his miracles. They're like, We don't understand how these miracles come from his hands, this wisdom, where does it come from, this teaching, how can it be? Because they begin asking questions. Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this the same Jesus whose brothers are here? Aren't his sisters here in town? Isn't this Mary's son? They started asking questions about Christ's very being. They were offended. And that word offended does not mean just a casual like, you offended me, you hurt my feelings. It's a deep-seated offense to vehemently reject down to the core of your being this person because you're so hostile towards them, what they've said and what they've done. This is them and their offense toward Jesus. They were hostile towards Jesus. Now, you would ask that this choosing to be offended at Jesus, why were they so offended? They were offended because Jesus was so ordinary. Did you catch that? Isn't this the carpenter? Brothers and sisters live here in town. Isn't this Mary's son? He's so ordinary. Christ is, can be offensive. But the truth is, here's the deal. Until you and I wrestle with the offensiveness of Jesus, we really cannot understand the graciousness of salvation nor salvation itself. We have to realize Christ in his message can rub and be offensive. They chose to be offensive at Jesus here in Nazareth, his very hometown, because he's so ordinary. Now, as he moves out of Nazareth, he's calling his disciples up to pair them up to go out and minister and serve in the surrounding villages. And as he does, he's given us, I believe, a blueprint of how Christ declares and decides for us to be sent out by him into our world as well. So read this passage that Jerry read for us as a blueprint of how Christ wants to send out believers today. 
And here's what I want you to capture. The big idea for this entire passage, the main theme would be this statement that Tim Keller done a great job with this statement here. And I've ca- I've, I borrowed it from him because he, it was so true. He says, exclusive in truth and inclusive in attractiveness. Exclusive in truth and inclusive in attractiveness. This is the blueprint Christ calls us to live out in the world around us as believers. Now, this statement is so significant because it says this, we have a totally exclusive truth about who Jesus is. And that can be offensive to some people, but we got to realize we must not take offense because it's against Jesus and not us. But we must also be very inclusive being a magnet with our attractiveness about how we live to those around us. When Christ's truth is shared, people are offended, but the offense is against Jesus and not against us. We're called to love, serve, go, and be among the people where we live, work, and play. And as we do, we share that exclusive truth about who Jesus is. He's the Son of God who lived a sinless life died in our place, rose from the grave, ascended into heaven, and gave us the design for an abundant life right here and right now. It speaks, this passage speaks of how we're to engage culture, how we are to live in the world but not of the world and share the truth of Christ and who he really is. And I want you to capture this passage because everything in this passage speaks to this truth and God's blueprint for our lives. Everything. What he grants them at the beginning speaks. What he tells them to take speaks. What he tells them not to take speaks. What he, ta- what he tells them to expect from the world speaks. How he tells them to respond speaks. Everything in this story speaks to us being called out as the disciples were called out at this moment in time in history. How Christ is calling us to be exclusive in truth and inclusive in attractiveness. That simultaneous bonding of those two realities in our lives. This exclusive truth about Christ will draw that offense. But we must acknowledge the offense but not take offense. And here's a key phrase for us. We as believers in Jesus Christ, here's your catchphrase, do not be offended and don't be offensive. We'll flesh that out in just a moment. You and I to live in such an inclusive and attractive life in a way that there's no doubt when people are offended, it is solely because of the truth of Jesus and totally not about us. We can get in the way. So how do we live this kind of life? How do we practice this truth in the world around us today, our calling by Jesus Christ? Where does it come from? It's right here in the passage. We've got to grab these principles here. The first thing we see about being called out this blueprint is this. Number one, it's all about Jesus. Totally not about me and you. It's all about Jesus. Christ begins when he sends them out by granting them authority over unclean spirits. Look at verse seven. He summoned. Now, summoning is a big word. That's not just being casually asked. When you're summoned, you're ordered to be in somebody's presence. He summons the disciples, the 12, and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over evil spirits. He granted them. He graciously gave them this authority. Now, how does that speak to us? When Christ granted them his authority, he was making it clear. What you're getting ready to do, Christ says, it's all about me, and it's not about you. See, when they went out in the villages, 
and miraculous things happened, then they would instantly be reminded, you know what? Jesus gave me this authority. This authority comes from him. It's about him working in me and through me and around me. Every time something great happened, it would be a constant reminder, an instant reminder that Christ was working in them and through them. You and I could do nothing on our own, but we can do all things through him working in us and through us. We've got to acknowledge and understand it's all about Jesus, him granting us what we do in our world around us. Second thing is this, that God is always with us. When Christ begins to lay out how they're supposed to go out, he tells them one thing to bring, a staff. Look at verse 8. He instructed them to take nothing for the road except a staff. The first part of verse 8. Take one thing with you, a staff. Now, this staff was most likely what they would have been calling a walking stick, as they would do as they would walk along. So he says, take your walking stick, take your staff with you as you go on this journey. Now, why a staff? They weren't shepherding sheep, so why a staff? I believe a couple of things are happening here. This, this staff was, was there as a constant reminder that God was with them. Why? I think it was a recollection back to Moses. Reflection. Remember with Moses' staff, what happens in the presence of the officials in Egypt? When the children of Israel are in bondage, what happens? Through Moses' staff, that staff in his hand, he surrendered to God and picked it back up again. Through that staff, God performed miracles in Egypt before Pharaoh. The children of Israel were delivered from bondage to freedom. They were marched through the wilderness straight to the edge of the promised land. When it was raised, they parted the Red Sea. That staff working in God, in Moses' hands, God working through that, the miracles that took place. What does that mean for us? God says, I'm always with you. And when this happens, it's all about me. And when it happens, I'm with you. And when I'm with you, you're going to see miraculous things take place. And it's all about me. I'm with you here. And we are called to go out and deliver a message that delivers people out of bondage to sin and freedom in Christ. We're to live out a message of hope, walking through places saying, I want to speak to Jesus. It's all about him and not about me. Christ, uh, God's word says this in Hebrews. He said, I will never leave you, nor will I ever forsake you. The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can man do to me? That staff was a constant reminder that God was with them. Know this, when God calls you out, as he does call us out, he says, I'm with you. I will not leave you. It's a reminder. Now, the next thing we see in this passage is, in his calling he puts on us is this, depend on Jesus for everything. Look at the bottom of verse 8. He says, no bread, no traveling bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals and not put on an extra shirt. He said to them, whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave that place. Now, catch what's going on. Typically for a trip, you would pack all these things. You pack your traveling bag, pack your money, pack that extra shirt, do all this stuff. But Jesus says, do not take any of that with you, only your staff. When you enter a house, stay there until you leave. So what is he doing? That's, this would be like me and you. Like, for example, when I go on a trip, here's my process. I am a midnight hour kind of person, wait till the last minute, but I know what I need to take for the most part. I know what to take with on a trip. So but the night before, I will 
casually before I go to bed, start pulling things out of the drawers, out of the bathroom. I'm laying it all out on the bed. I roll everything, man. I'd roll it tight to get tight as smallest bag possible for the most stuff. I roll my underwear as small as they are. I roll it up. I don't want to waste any space. And I pack. I say, and I start looking. Enough underwear? Yes. T-shirts? Yes. Shorts? Yes. Long pants? Yes. Toiletries? Yes. Then I go through it one more time. Then I put it all in a suitcase, ready for the trip. Just grab it and go the next morning. Here we go. Would you say you pack pretty much like that? Just throw it in the bag and go? You know you're taking the stuff. You know you're doing it. You pack. You're ready. Prepared. You got your money. You got your credit cards. You're ready for things that might come as expenses. You're ready. You call the bank and said, I'm traveling. Don't cut me off. That's what you do, right? This right here would be like us going on a trip. We lay all this stuff out, ready for the trip like we always do. And we go the next morning and say, you going to pack your stuff? No, nah, I'm just taking my toothbrush. Forget that stuff. Here you go. Now, if a person did that, what would you instantly think about that person? This person is not going to survive. They are going to sink quickly because they need their stuff. They did not pack well. They're not prepared. Looking at this right here, that was the very point. I want you to capture this. This point right here was the minimum of provisions for them to take with them was meaning to draw out the maximum of faith. Jesus is saying, you need to trust me as you're going to provide even your basic essentials of food. Some other things he's telling them here in this passage, but everything tells them, he tells them not to bring, draws attention to his de- their daily dependence upon him and drawing them to be within the community. The command to not take bread or a traveling bag or money or extra shirt. He says, depend upon him and be among the people. Don't take bread where you'll eat by yourself. Depend on him to provide food and eat with them. Don't take a travel bag to plan your departure before you ever leave. Don't take so much money that you can live in a lush, plush condominium or apartment or a hotel outside of town and busting every day and preaching the square with the truth of Jesus and then bust back out again. No. Don't do it. Depend on me. Don't pack that extra shirt. They knew an extra shirt could be used as a blanket. He says, no, don't pack it. Depend on them. Depend on me. I'll provide. Everything he says, he says, stay there until you enter house. Stay there until you leave. He's telling them to be dependent upon me. Maximize your faith. Be among the people. Depend on them. Depend on me in this process. The third, the next thing is this. Do life in the culture and community. Hospitality in those days was much bigger than it is today. Big deal back in their day. He says, I want you to be dependent on hospitality of the people who you're ministering to. I want you to live among them. His challenge was for them to go with the message of Jesus, his message, depend on the hospitality of the people, actually live among them and depend on them as an act of tremendous respect and humility. And I want you to notice, he did not say just go and speak it and leave. They go talking, speaking, and they go acting it out with them in life. 
They do life with them, not just speak it. They're doing it and living it. They go serving. They go anointing and healing the sick, serve ministering them. They exercise demons. They're not simply going to tell people things. They're going to minister and serve and meet needs. Christ saying, don't just speak it, but do it and be with and among the people. But in spite of going to minister and serve, he says, there will be some who will reject you. There will be some who will push back. When you're exclusively truthful and exclusively attractive, some people will be offended. Look at verse 11. If any place does not welcome you or listen to you, when you leave there, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Here's the next thing. Expect some rejection, but stay engaged. This statement of shaking the dust off your feet is a very common phrase back in the day. I want to clarify something real quickly of what I don't believe it means. It does not mean that, I, that God says, I give you permission to write that person off. Shaking the dust off your feet does not mean I'm done with you. Hand in your face, done. No more, finished. That's not what it's stating. Shaking the dust off your feet was very popular, very common back then, because when they would travel to Gentile villages and cities, pagan worshiping places, as a symbolism coming back to Jerusalem, the holy city, before they entered the city limits, they would shake the dust off their feet, wash their feet due to the pagan dust from the city coming into the city, not to contaminate Jerusalem. Now, I want to ask you a question. Did they cease going back to these Gentile villages? They went, they went all the time. They didn't do it once and go, done with you, washing my feet off, I'm done. They kept going back. Shaking the dust off our feet is, is here's what it says. At this moment, you're rejecting what I have told you. So at this moment, I'm letting you know that your response is totally on you. I've done my deal. I've explained who Jesus is, what he's done, trying to live it before you. It's on you. Responsibility's on you, not on me. You know? In other words, I would say it's you do you and I do me, and I've told you what it is, and I'll keep digging into your life, but here it is. Shaking the dust off your feet is another way of saying this. You're now responsible for what I've told you. I've told you about Jesus, given you all the information, and now your responsibility is on you. It's not on me anymore. Christ is saying this to us in this. You should be so incredibly attractive. You should go out loving people, sacrificially giving to people, serving people, healing the sick, exercising demons, ministering. By doing this, you're going to be incredibly attractive. But you're also telling people that I'm the only Lord and Savior of the world. That will cause people to reject and be offended. But he says, you know what? Acknowledge the offense, but don't take offense. Not being offended is a choice. It's a choice that you and I must make. It's a difficult choice. But we got to dig our feet in the sand and say, I choose not to be offended. You and I should live so incredibly attractive in our approach that when people are offended, it leaves no doubt, no doubt, that their offense is against Jesus and not about us. And again, we choose not to be offensive nor take offense. Now, example, when you look at the early church, what do we see? We see this played out all over the place in the book of Acts. The early church was so exclusive in their truth about Jesus that it pushed the limits. On one hand, the message of Jesus being an offensive, exclusive message 
It's a message the pagan world had never heard. And at that point, the pagans had their own gods, and here come Christians saying there's only one God. They were offended. But on the other hand, Christians came along as the most inclusive people, attractive people they'd ever seen because they were exclusive in their truth with what they'd heard, but they were most inclusively attractional that they'd ever seen. They heard this truth and they're like, I don't, I've never heard this before. This is new to me. But then they saw it, other things fleshed out that they began to do in their presence. Christians in the early church cared for the poor like the pagan world had never done before. Christianity included the different races and brought classes together of people in all levels of humanity like the, the pagans thought was improper and could not be done. They were the most exclusively sounding people but the most inclusive acting people that history has ever seen. That caused persecution, caused some rejection, but it also caused, caused them to grow like wildfire. That's why you read in Acts, read it sometime and just highlight through how many times God's Word says, and God added to their numbers daily. 5,000 people added in one day to the church, 3,000 added to the church, 1,000 added to the church. Why? Because they shared the truth, and they were attractive in how they lived. Now, I, I think the other church was what I would call very selectively offensive. They weren't offensive to everybody, and not attractive to everybody. It was very selective because they said, here's what it is. And this is a test for all of us. If you're a follower of Christ, this is a test for you, test for me. If you're never offensive, if you never face rejection, never face hostility, that most likely means you're not standing for the gospel, standing for Jesus. But on the flip side, and let's catch this side too, the other side of the coin. If you're constantly offensive, if you're constantly clashing of your Christian beliefs, if you're consistently at odds with people, it's most likely a result of personal obnoxiousness. You know, Jesus said in the Beatitudes, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. He did not say, blessed are those who are persecuted for, for obnoxiousness. That's not what he said. For righteousness' sake, if you add at any level obnoxiousness to normal offensiveness to the gospel, you really won't be attractive to anybody. If you find yourself being attractive but not offensive, or offensive but not attractive, then something is wrong. Now, I'll admit, it is very, it's way too easy to be offensive and to be offended. Choosing not to be offensive or offended is never easy, but always the right choice. We got to be selective in how that happens. Now, where do we get this power to live this way? Where do we get this power to go out and do this blueprint like Christ calls us in the world? Where does it come from? Where's the source? It's all when we look at Jesus. The power comes from Jesus, who died in our place on the cross for our sin. And if the core truth of my life is this man named Jesus dying on a cross for his enemies, people who do not believe in him at that moment, that means it's impossible for me to be superior. It means I, it's impossible to be self-righteous. It means it's impossible for me to be exclusive with anything but truth. Jesus being that unique Son of God dying on the cross for us means we are filled with self-giving love. We 
have both the power and the reason to turn to people who don't believe what we believe, and maybe even our enemies, to turn and pour our lives into them anyway. Are you willing to be both attractive and offensive? Are you willing to be inclusive in your lifestyle? Offensive and exclusive in the truth, inclusive in your lifestyle. The closer you get in life to what Jesus has done for us, you, the more you will become the most attractive and offensive person in the world all at the same time. Now, when we live, when we live exclusively truthful and inclusively attractional and choose not to be offended or be offensive, you know what happens? We help people answer the question that's throughout Mark's gospel. Who is this man? Who is Jesus? When you look at that question, it's threaded throughout the whole gospel of Mark. When you look, the community wrestled with it. They saw his miracles, heard his teachings. They said, who is this man? Who is Jesus? The disciples wrestled with this. Remember on the boat, the boat scene in the storm? What was their question? Who is this man that even the winds and the waves obey him? And right here in this passage, Herod is wrestling with this question. And by the way, what Jerry read for us in Herod's story about John the Baptist beheading his death is a reflection back to what has already taken place. And so why is it stuck here like Mark sticks it here in this gospel? Right behind the disciples going out to minister. I think for a couple of reasons here. One reason is I believe it's a foreshadowing or looking ahead to the death of Christ on the cross. John the Baptist being his forerunner, that voice in the wilderness is put to death. Christ's death is imminent. It's coming down the road. It's also a warning of potential persecution that could be and most likely can come the way of believers. But I believe there's, there's another main reason that it's here the way it is. John the Baptist's death is mentioned like it is where it is for this question of who is Jesus. See, there are many answers, as we read right here, and Herod had his own answer, which was haunting him. Look at verse 14. King Herod heard about it because, why? Jesus' name had become well known. That's our responsibility. Make his name known. Some said John the Baptist has been raised from the dead, and that's why miraculous powers are working him. But others said he's Elijah. So others said he's a prophet, like one of the prophets from long ago. Look at verse 16. When Herod heard it, he said, John... The one I beheaded has been raised. I want to challenge you with this thought. People in the world around us, right here in our community called Morganton, Burke County, right here in our area, right in the United States, all across the world, in different places, all, all over the world, people are asking the question, who is this Jesus? Who is he? And Christ is calling us to go out and live among the culture, engage the culture with the truth of Jesus, and be so attractive that we show them who Jesus is by how we live. Christ is essentially calling us to speak to and live out the gospel within the culture around us. That when they ask this question, Herod is haunted by this because he says, Christ is becoming well known, and who is he? It's the one I beheaded. John is back alive again. The world asks this question all the time. And our lives are so be on display that they see and understand and get the right answer. 
I want you to look at three words on the screen real quickly as we close. Justification, sanctification, glorification. This right here is three words that describe the essence of the gospel. The gospel is how you come to Christ, how you sustain your life in Christ, and how you end this life in Christ. The gospel is all-inclusive about our entire life. Many of us think that the gospel is just where we enter this thing called salvation, then it's done. It's like the diving board into a pool. But you know what? The gospel is the pool. And here's why these words mean so much with this passage. Justification, being justified. That is the point in time when you come to know Jesus as your Savior and your Lord, when you come to know Jesus. You're justified. Justified in the eyes of God. Justification means declared righteous before God. At that moment, you're declared righteous. Then, at the point you're declared righteous, you begin a process of sanctification, being sanctified. Being sanctified means being made holy, being made like Christ. And as I'm being made holy, being made like Christ, the world needs to hear that I've been justified, but witness and see that I am in a process of being sanctified. I'm in a process of being made like Christ, being in Christ. That is the gospel lived out in front of the world around us. Glorification is that point in time where we are in eternity with Him in His presence because of being justified by Him, sanctified. And we speak to that eternal home where we're going one day to be with Jesus, that this home, this place in the world is temporary. So how does this all... Once we are justified, we live out how we're being sanctified by modeling the abundant life Christ gives us here and now, and we all the time speak to how we will eventually be glorified. Challenge. The world must hear that, see that, understand that by us. Christ says, I'm sending you out to do this because the world must hear the gospel, see the gospel, be challenged by the gospel. By this, raises curiosity about who is this Jesus. And as we live life with them, as we live among them, we depend on Jesus. Our faith grows. We know it's all about Him. We realize, so just, we engross ourselves and just dive into this. We say, you know what? Let me tell you who He is, and let me show you who He is. And I will tell you this, in many, many tests, there's multiple choice. The world has many multiple choice answers to who Jesus is. There's only one right answer. You and I must speak to that answer and live out that answer before them that they might get the right answer because life depends on it. Are you willing to live this kind of life? Do you want to be called out, sent out by Jesus? Will you answer that call? Will you obey him in this? Will you find time to say, as we're going to sing down a song of worship, God, just kneel me down at your feet. Show me humility. You wash the feet of the weary. I want to be like you, Jesus. Is that your heart's cry today? Let's stand together and worship through humble King. Thank you for tuning in to this week's sermon. For more information about Summit Community Church, please check out our website at summitchurch.me or on social media on Facebook or Instagram at SCC Morganton.